he has a pretty bad track record in the environment, but I have to say in terms of climate impacts, Doug Ford may have had one of the biggest impacts on Canada's carbon emissions of any premier through just that decision to keep Pickering going for a little while longer. Again, that's 1% of Canada's emissions if we, if we shut Pickering down. The Rational View is a weekly series hosted by me, Dr. Alan Scott, providing a rational, evidence-based perspective on important societal issues. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Rational View. I'm your host, Dr. Al Scott. On this episode, I'm going to revisit an issue that I've spent a lot of time on because I think it's probably the most important issue uh, of our time, and that's the transition of our entire economy from a fossil fuel basis to a low carbon basis. And as anyone who's followed my podcast knows, uh, I believe that the safest and cheapest way to do this is through uh, dispatchable, safe, clean, green nuclear energy. And to do this, we need to use all the tools at our disposal. We need to keep our existing assets, upgrade them if necessary, and we need to bring online a lot more. And we also need to tax the fossil fuels and remove them and replace them in a safe and efficient way. And to discuss this, you'll probably be happy to know that I'm bringing back a guest that I've chatted with before. Uh, and this guest is uh, very active in the field of uh, nuclear advocacy. And I think you'll enjoy this episode. Uh, I know I enjoyed chatting with him last time. Uh, if you do like it, please, please hit like on your podcast app. Uh, please share it with your friends uh, and come chat with me at The Rational View discussion group on Facebook. We'd love to hear from you. Dr. Chris Kiefer is an emergency physician, medical simulation educator, nuclear energy advocate, and a popular podcaster. He's president of Canadians for Nuclear Energy and the director of Doctors for Nuclear Energy. Plus, he's the host of the Decouple podcast. He also has another special honor. He's the first repeat guest on The Rational View. Since our first interview, I've gotten to know Chris a lot better through Canadians for Nuclear Energy, and he constantly amazes me with his energy and focus on nuclear advocacy. Chris, welcome back to The Rational View. Al, it's, uh, it's an honor to be the first returning guest. Uh, thank you for, for having me back on. So what have you been up to since our first interview almost a year ago? Yeah, it's been that long. Um, well, you know, I've been working away in the emergency department and uh, got vaccinated, which feels absolutely fabulous. A little bit protected um, before our, mm-hmm. our third wave hit us. Um, things have simmered down a bit in the ER. And uh, yeah, I've been, been busy uh, with the podcast and more recently, um, really bringing this nuclear advocacy thing home and grounding it in my, my home context. I've always um, kind of had this joke that um, you know, with climate change, there's a lot of talk about, you know, what can you do as an individual? You know, what if I become a vegan? What if I ride my bike more often? What if I get an electric car? And, and I've always, um, you know, applied that triage ethic that I think we talked about in the first episode of, you know, yes. how can I marshal the limited resources I have to make the biggest difference? And I've always thought that saving a nuclear power plant um, probably has the largest carbon impact. And indeed, um, we've run the calculations on it if we're able to save uh, Pickering. 
um, and refurbish it, um, I'll be able to keep uh, 10 million tons of CO2 out of the air. So that's that's kind of what's been motivating me recently. And uh, wow, ten <laughs> got million. an exciting campaign uh, to, to tell you about uh, if, if you want to hear about it. Yeah, I mean, uh, definitely love to hear about your campaign. Um, do you want to tell, tell me what it is? What, what, what are we doing? Yeah, so um, Canadians for Nuclear Energy, uh, we've, we've, you know, throughout our history, we've been, you know, we just actually were founded in December of 2019, um, right on the cusp there of the new year. Um, we were busy. We put out a, a House of Commons petition, um, really bold pro-nuclear uh, language, um, you know, specifically saying nuclear energy is the most environmentally friendly form of energy generation, drawing attention to um, you know, the 76,000 Canadians that are employed in high-skilled, um, high-paying jobs across the country, um, the contribution of medical isotopes to, to the pandemic. Um, we actually got it um, read on the floor of the House of Commons by, uh, by Julie Zerowicz, one of, uh, you know, local liberal MP of mine. Um, so we've done some kind of exciting things. Um, but yeah, the, the most recent uh, action that we've taken is a campaign called Tax the Gas. Um, and okay. this has to do with, uh, you know, what I feel is really uh, a big scandal of our time, a big climate scandal of our time, which is that, um, you know, even with Ontario's um, reluctant move towards uh, carbon tax legislation, um, through our large emitters program, we will be exempting our only real carbon emitting form of energy generation on the grid, a.k.a. natural gas, will be exempting 90% of their emissions from actually being carbon taxed. So let me get this straight. 90% of natural gas power is not going to be subject to the carbon tax through a program called the Big Emitters Program? <laughs> Isn't emissions? I'm learning about some of the technical language here. Um, that does sound scandalous. It is. It really is. Um, it's, it's very interesting because, um, you know, Really, this is the result of, of the Ontario government, um, re you know, rejecting the premise of a carbon tax. Uh, those of your listeners who live in Ontario will probably remember the stickers, the decals that Doug Ford um, forced us to put on our gas pumps, uh, you know, rejecting the gas, rejecting the carbon tax. Um, but reluctantly, you know, through a Supreme Court challenge, um, the, the federal mandate of imposing carbon taxes on provincial governments was um, was accepted. The federal government actually is equally responsible because they've put in um, what's called a backstop, essentially. So certain um, certain guidelines to you know how aggressive the tax has to be. And so they've set this margin of uh, 300 grams of CO2 per kilowatt hour um, as the, the point at which any emissions above that will be taxed. And what's what's Ontario's average emissions right now? Like the Ontario it's power grid, what do we typically something, You know, it bounces around a little bit, um, but it's it's something around 40, 45 grams of CO2 per kilowatt hour. So, you know, Ontario is a world leader in terms of uh, a clean energy grid. It was something that I did not know about prior to this advocacy. And, and really, it's one of the reasons that I became so motivated to, to be engaged in this is that, you know, we are a province with some hydro resources, but um, around the world, the successful decarbonizations of, of large economies has all been on the backbone of either hydro um, or hydro with nuclear. Um, so learning that Ontario was a, a climate leader and that we had an example to share not only across the country but with the world was was motivating. Um, 
And, you know, we, we did a great thing um, in the early 2000s, um, which was to mandate that coal be removed from the grid. Um, we were able to do that because we had some Kandu units that were mothballed and we were able to bring them back online um, and, you know, forever kick coal off the grid. And so now um, our only sort of source of, of emissions is gas generation. And a carbon tax is supposed to be this market-friendly way to incentivize good behavior. And, you know, if you're only taxing 10% of the emissions, you know, our argument at Canadians for Nuclear Energy is that this is, this is not enough. Wow. Okay, that, there's a lot to unpack there. So Ontario's average emissions is on the order of 40 grams per kilowatt hour of CO2. Yeah, and this tax doesn't kick in until you get to three hundred grams. So you know, almost ten times our average before you're going to see any carbon tax on the big emitters on the power system. Exactly. So yeah. you and me are going to be paying carbon tax on our gasoline, but the the big utilities that are burning fossil fuels to make electricity aren't taxed until they're they're only ten percent of their emissions are going to be taxed. Exactly. Exactly. And this, this is all occurring in the context of, um, you know, Ontarians losing one of our key pieces of um, low carbon infrastructure, which is the Pickering Nuclear Generating Station. And, you know, again, for someone who didn't know a lot about nuclear up until a couple of years ago, um, Ontario has the largest operating nuclear plant in the world right now up at Bruce Power. And we have two other, you know, very large stations putting enormous amounts of carbon free electricity onto the grid. We, you know, in the early 2000s, um, we had to make a decision. And one of those was to refurbish Pickering, to swap out old components um, and get the reactors operating. Um, and they had a projected lifespan uh, into the 2060s um, with refurbishment. Um, but for a variety of reasons, we chose instead to embark on something called the Green Energy Act. Um, which was really a, an effort to try and replicate the German energy venda, the energy turnaround, and focused on basically incentivizing private investors to build renewables with, you know, very, very lucrative locked-in 20-year contracts um, that have really, you know, contributed to, you know, very, very high electricity prices here in Ontario, which, of course, are a regressive, uh, economic factor in, in terms of the poorer people in this province. So basically we have an energy crisis scheduled for 2024. Uh, the, the Pickering nuclear reactor is scheduled to be shut down in 2024 and Pickering has, uh, what, a, a, what, can you give us a background on, on Pickering's capacity? What, what is it just, just to, to set the stage for this change? Sure, sure. So, you know, it's really interesting. Pickering um, was built in the, the first first section of it. So there's two big sides to it. There's eight reactors there, um, six of which are currently um, operational. Um, it was built instead of a four gigawatt coal plant. And it's just astounding to think about that. Like if, if a four gigawatt coal plant had been built just on the outskirts uh, of the greater Toronto area, the, the amount of pollution it would have created, the amount of lives that would have been cut down prematurely, you know, as a physician, the, the, the toll in terms of respiratory conditions, cardiovascular, it's, it's horrific to think about. So, you know, instead of, instead of doing that, we built a very large uh, nuclear station um, called Pickering. And yeah, so it, it delivers uh, 3,100 uh, megawatts. Um, 
So, you know, that's a lot of power. That's um, something like, uh, I believe, of 15, uh, 20% of Ontario's overall uh, energy production at, at any given time. Um, because it's situated oh, so it's close huge. to Toronto, that, that power is, is a huge chunk of what powers the city. Um, and in terms of our sort of baseload needs in the city, Pickering covers it. And it does it on an incredibly small land footprint of, of you know, something a bit bigger than a large Costco or shopping mall. Okay, but when when was Pickering brought into service? Isn't it getting pretty old, a little long in the tooth? Isn't it dangerous having that next to Toronto? Yeah, so, you know, there was an, two sides to this. There's the, the A side, which was built in the 70s, and the B side, most of which came along in the 80s. Um, and so Canda reactors are designed with a, it's called a midlife refurbishment in mind, right? So um, that's when you swap out the critical components so that you can ensure a safe operation for, you know, another 30 or 40 years. Um, and that's indeed what's happening now at Darlington and Bruce. Um, so it's not controversial. Um, this is not, um, you know, in any way untoward. This is something that's expected. It's, you know, refurbs have been finished now. Um, on the A side of Pickering, so those older units, you know, a lot of people are saying, hey, these are 50-year-old reactors. Well, no, no, the A side uh, was built in the 70s, but it was refurbished in the late 90s. Um, and so they have another lease on life of, of 30 years. Um, the B side has not yet been refurbished, but it has another 30 to 40 years in it um, if we refurbish those four units. Um, and, you know, Point La Proa, New Brunswick, that plant has been refurbished. Um, there's plants around the world that have been refurbished. So we know we can do this. Um, and we have, you know, really, really precious infrastructure. When you actually start looking at the challenges of decarbonization um, and you realize what we're up against, you know, just to just to um, electrify transportation in Ontario, we're going to require something like two times the output output of Bruce Power, which is the largest nuclear generating station in the world. We're going to need about 14 to 15 gigawatts of electricity to do that. Um, you know, and we need that electricity to be reliable. We need to be you know, performing at nighttime when people are charging their vehicles. So there's a lot that needs to be done. And we really need to think about our nuclear plants um, as, you know, key pieces of infrastructure, as, as clean energy cathedrals, as they've been called by some of my colleagues in the U.S. Indeed. Now, I'm, I'm agreeing with you, but I'm going to play a little bit of devil's advocate here because obviously um, there are a lot of people that think that we shouldn't refurbish Pickering. Um, you know, what happens... Uh, you know, why why is it being shut down? For for example, why is it not being refurbished? Is there something particular about Pickering? It, you know, it, it's very old. Uh, maybe it's more difficult to refurbish than these other uh, reactors that have been successfully refurbished. So yeah, I mean, there was uh, an application put into the Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission. It was approved. There was an environmental assessment done as well. So the wheels were in motion for refurbishment. It was really a political decision. And when as was I this said, decision made? This was um, in the late, two, you know, it's almost hard talking about that first decade of the 2000s, but uh, <laughs> the application was put in in the first decade of the 2000s. Um, and the decision not to go ahead was actually, I believe, just in 2019, the final decision not to do a refurb. Um, you know, in the meantime, like I said, we spent tens of billions of dollars um, on these lucrative wind and solar contracts, which... You know, unfortunately, if you add wind and solar to an ultra low carbon grid, it's it's not cost effective whatsoever in terms of bringing down emissions. And particularly when you're adding on sources like wind that produce, you know, dramatically out of out of uh, time with demand. 
Um, so, you know, those investments really paid off very, very little in terms of um, carbon intensity. Um, and we chose to invest in that direction rather than um, rather than in a refurbishment of Pickering. Yes, it is a smaller plant with smaller units in it. Um, it's going to be trickier to refurbish than some of the larger plants. So there's an economic argument there. But in terms of, you know, what we know how to do well here in Canada, we know can do intimately, right? We've done a number of refurbishments. So we know how to do that well, um, you know, through studying nuclear uh, throughout the world and particularly in the West in the last, you know, 20 years where a lot of projects have gone, you know, over overpriced and over time. Um, we need to stick with what I think are the safest bets the things we're most equipped to deal with, the supply chains that we have in place, the workforce that is experienced. And those folks are, you know, in terms of what's actively happening in the Canadian nuclear industry, there's talk about SMRs and things like that coming down the road, but we know how to refurbish. Our supply chains are there. Um, and so for me, a refurbishment of Pickering represents the lowest risk opportunity for, um, you know, for Canadians to preserve this this vital piece of infrastructure. Just, just one cool stat, you know, if we let Pickering go offline, replace it with gas, 10 million tons of CO2 are added to our emissions. That's going to increase Canada's overall emissions by 1% for the whole country. We're supposed to get 30% lower than 2005 emissions, according to our Paris Agreement. So this is a, a big move in the wrong direction. This is, this is uh, again, a vital piece of, of infrastructure that's, um, you know, again, absolutely vital to, to meeting our Paris commitments. But our, our wind resources are being underutilized. What if... You know, we shut down Pickering and renewables will take up the slack. Is that is that something that might happen? So we have a, a wind fleet in Ontario that's, you know, close to 5,000 megawatts. That sounds great. It's, you know, got a capacity that's larger than Pickering's. The thing is, Pickering is online producing power at least 90% of the time. Um, you know, in Darlington, a neighboring plant, uh, you know, one of their reactors set the world record for the longest run of a thermal plant. Now, you know, that wind capacity, unfortunately, it, it is very erratic. Some days it, it performs and you'll get almost all of it producing at once. But when we critically need it during heat waves, you might notice when it gets really hot and muggy here in Ontario, the wind is still. You wish there was a gust of breeze just to blow some of that sweat off you. Um, but wind just doesn't show up, right? Um, or in the winter, in our, in our deep cold spells, it's often quite still. Um, so it's not a valuable resource for us in that regard. Um, and so in no way can make up for the loss of Pickering. It's just you can't swap out an apple for an orange here. Okay, well, how about uh, another option? I've heard Ontario Clean Air Alliance talking about Quebec Hydro. You know, maybe maybe if we run a new line to Quebec, we'll have uh, we'll just use Quebec Hydro to fill in. And that's, you know, a very green, clean energy source. Uh, you know, Ontario has a lot of hydro. Uh, Quebec has, you know, the most hydro of anywhere in the world, I think. Why don't we use their hydro? So it's an interesting question. Ontario does have a, a decent amount of hydro. Um, it is what we call run of the river. So it's not the kind of hydro that we can use to, you know, firm renewables or really, you know, help meet peaks in demand. Um, but it's there. It's a viable resource. It's very low carbon. Um, you're right. Quebec has an enormous hydro capacity and they have a surplus and they're very interested in selling it. Currently, they sell it mostly to uh, our neighbors in the United States, um, into New England, where it's used to displace coal and gas generation. That's an amazing use for, you know, ultra low carbon hydro to displace gas and coal. 
what's not a great use for it is to ship it into Ontario. Presumably, then you're not going to be displacing that coal and gas from upstate uh, New York um, and, and using that hydro to, to replace ultra low emissions nuclear. It just it doesn't make sense. Um, carbon emissions, air pollution, they don't respect national boundaries. Um, and then in addition to that, we're talking about you know, an enormous amount of infrastructure that would need to get built. Um, I'm not sure if you know any any NIMBY people, but transmission lines <laughs> are one of the things that's very strongly opposed by people going through their backyard. Um, it would be a really, really big investment. I'm not sure if you've seen how far James Bay is from uh, Toronto, for instance. So it's a long, long way. Um, yeah, so I've actually seen some reports saying that, you know, it, it's cheaper to keep Pickering running than it is to build new transmission for Quebec Hydro. Well, I mean, it's not just, you know, to be to be fair, it's not just about keeping it running like we, we have uh, actually Doug Ford did extend the life of Pickering um, for about four to five years, which is, you know, a very important decision. You know, he has a pretty bad track record in the environment in terms of things like the green belt and being very you know pro-development at the expense of protected areas. But I have to say, in terms of climate impacts, Doug Ford may have had one of the biggest impacts on Canada's carbon emissions of any premier through just that decision to keep Pickering going for a little while longer. Again, that's 1% of Canada's emissions if we if we shut Pickering down. But just to continue on with the this hydro from Quebec thing, because it's it's a very, you know, potentially an enticing option. It, it seems to kind of intrinsically make some sense. We've talked about how, you know, that power is already doing great work displacing coal and gas. Okay, so we want to continue that CO2 emissions don't respect national boundaries. But the other part is that, you know, Hydro-Quebec are willing to sell us a certain amount of energy. Let's say it's, you know, 10 terawatt hours over a year. And that sounds great, but they're not saying that we're going to give you the exact power you need at the moment that you need it. And in fact, because Quebec heats with electricity, they peak their demand in the winter on cold, cold days. And every year, Ontario is actually exporting power to Quebec to help them through that crunch. So, you know, we have the incredible luxury that when we experience a blackout, it's typically because a tree fell on a power line across the road. Some uh, folks from the utility come and chop it down and get things up again in a few hours. We don't really have much experience with, you know, critical blackouts. Um, And so we we have to be very careful about, you know, building a reliable power system um, that we all depend on for, you know, things like medical care. Uh, my hospital recently, the, the power lines were, were cut by uh, a road service and we were running on oh. a diesel backup generator for three days. It's, it's hair raising when you, when you think about critical infrastructure. So, you know, the hydro option from Quebec is just, it's not a, not a realistic option and it just makes zero sense. You know, we should be, we need to build a lot more low carbon infrastructure, not build, you know, thousands of kilometers of transmission lines. Um, to reroute low carbon uh, hydro from you know upstate New York to Ontario. So taking Quebec hydro is bad for the environment because right now it's actually displacing coal and and natural gas in the U.S. That that's 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 a good a good counter argument that I yeah I hadn't thought about that. So I mean this sort of thing has happened before. Um, I think New York's uh, shut down their Indian Point nuclear reactor under similar circumstances and for similar reasons that uh, they're afraid of having uh, you know their their um their anti-nuclear groups were 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 worried about having this uh nuclear uh thing close to a large population center effectively mm-hmm. 
you know, what, what's the risk of having a, a nuclear facility close to a population center? It seems scary to have the, the risk of this uh, somehow melting down and contaminating these, these cities. Is that, a re- is that a real risk or is it, uh, is it fear-mongering? I mean, to be clear, um, Pickering is different than Indian Point. Indian Point did not require any refurbishment. Um, it was shut down for exactly what you're describing, this fear-mongering. Um, but leaving that aside, you know, Pickering is built near a large population center. You know, I live here. My son lives here. You know, my family lives here. Um, I used to, when I used to drive uh, up to my parents' cottage, I used to hold my breath when I drove past the, the Pickering facility because I was so scared of, you know, what could happen with it. Um, it's quite mm-hmm. ironic because it's actually what delivered, you know, the clean air that we now enjoy after the coal phase out. But in any case, you know, Pickering is built with a vast number of backup systems. They actually have this uh, this vacuum building. So in the event of any um, radiologic release, um, any of those gases go into this, this vacuum building, this reinforced concrete building um, where they're condensed out. Um, so you can't have the kind of things like, like happened at Fukushima. And first off, there's not big fault lines and tsunami uh, risks and things like that. Um, but the can-do design in and of itself as well is, is a very, very safe design. Um, throughout the course of, you know, can-do history, there have been several small incidents with, you know, a single pressure tube breaking. Um, the plants have handled that very well. There's not been any major um, release of anything um, to the public. So I think... Now, these, wait a minute. These Just pressure, before you go on, these, yeah. these pressure tubes that, that I've heard about have broken in the past and nothing has been mm-hmm. released. I, I was... So, I thought... These were like the most dangerous thing ever, and they're they're cracking and they're going to break, and we're all worried about this. And you're telling me they've already broken and no one was was injured. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so this is the other thing, right? When you hear about, well, this is an old technology, this is an old reactor. I mean, this is um, like a high performance car that you're constantly swapping new stuff in and out of, and you're you're improving the alloys and things on the tubes and stuff like that. But yeah, I mean, it's it's very different to have a, a tube crack than to have, you know, a core meltdown. It's, you know, I don't, I don't want to get too far into the, the details. I'm not a nuclear engineer. Um, sure. But suffice it to say, there's there's a lot of heavy water circulating around there. There's a lot of, you know, thermal mass um, to absorb heat, you know, from, from something like that. Um, and to date, again, there have been a couple of pressure tube failures, and that has not resulted in any kind of a release. Um, there's, mm-hmm. again, a number of automatic backup systems like magnetic control rods, which will drop in, um, you know, a, an, an, an element that's used to kill nuclear reactions that's ready to go. So there's kind of double redundancy and this vacuum building. You know, personally, I'm not worried about it whatsoever. Um, I'm far more worried about the implications of, of dirty air, right? And, you know, I was a child in Toronto in the early 2000s. I remember, um, you know, Toronto used to be called the, the big smoke, right? We, the other yeah. day with the wildfires in northern Ontario, there was some of that smoke blowing in. And, and it was a real flashback to that time, you know, when you could barely make out the CN Tower or the office towers downtown. Um, you know, we have um, reports from the Ontario Medical Association that are estimating that because of the coal phase of improvements in air quality during that time, um, we save something like a thousand lives a year from air pollution and tens yeah, that's, of thousands of ER visits and hospitalizations. So, you know, it's it is tricky because, you know, people have been raised to have a, a really mortal fear of radiation and anything nuclear. 
while we don't pay any attention to um, air pollution, which takes a, a massive toll on us. And that's what we're going to see happen here when Pickering closes is almost its entire output is going to be replaced by, by natural gas, which is cleaner burning than coal, but um, but nevertheless uh, results in significant smog pollution. It's a huge double standard. If you look at the 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 research on health effects of burning fossil fuels and particulate matter in the air and and all of these things just the direct pollution related deaths uh, are clearly far and away more dangerous than any of the radiation that's released from nuclear plants even in the worst accidents yeah. a, a useful thing to remember is that outside of of ukraine outside of chernobyl there's not been a single death from a radiation release from a civilian nuclear plant Fukushima has not resulted in a single radiation-induced death. Three Mile Island, neither, right? So, yes, there is. There's this really key term, you know, hazard versus a risk. You know, any any form of highly dense energy poses a hazard. You know, natural gas pipelines blow up. Um, you know, coal plants uh, pollute the air. Those are those are hazards and risks. Nuclear has a hazard associated with it, but it's been exceptionally well managed. And we have to think about things not in terms of absolute risk, but relative risk. And nuclear, you know, it's got a proven track record, um, and its its impacts are unambiguously positive for public health as a result of displacing air polluting fossil fuels. Indeed, uh, I've I like a there's a figure I I've seen uh, looking at you know plotting the PM 2.5, which is like the 2.5 micron particle concentration from burning fossil fuels. And you can map it and all cities are measuring this as a, as a pollutant and they have a daily update. And basically, if you measure any of this, you're killing more people than radiation in Chernobyl or Fukushima together. If you measure any of this stuff and all cities are reporting on this. If 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 we had a level playing field in terms of fear mongering, all of these cities would be evacuated as soon as you measure any of this. You would evacuate no. the city. Yeah. Because yeah. there is a a known health risk that kills people. <laughs> yeah. For sure. For sure. Uh, the it's, double it's, a, it's staggering. A, it's a real it's a it's a tough uphill battle and I you know I I was a radiophobe. <laughs> you know, like I've I've been there both um, because of my childhood, because of, you know, being the son of parents that, you know, fought against nuclear weapons testing. Um, and as a physician where, you know, we are very much a part of that linear no threshold hypothesis worldview, um, where we're trying to, you know, minimize radiation doses as much as possible because of a real exaggerated fear of what we might do with our medical diagnostics. But, you know, in the last couple of years, I've, I've had the opportunity to, like you, through our podcast, to interview some real world experts. And it's it's really changed my point of view. So it's not I'm not trying to poo poo and say that there's no hazards and no risks involved with nuclear power. But in terms of the relative risks, particularly, uh, I mean, concretely with air pollution, but particularly in the context of runaway climate change. I mean, this is turning into a, a crisis or turning into an emergency. It's, it's a bit in slow motion, but we're you know, we had 500 deaths from uh from heat stress in in bc this year for god's sake so we all need to do our part we all need to pull and we need to manage hazards and risks and apply those to you know the challenges that we face and so for me the calculus is is 100 for doing everything we can to preserve this critical clean energy infrastructure the the next thing that that opponents are going to bring up is the cost um, nuclear is seen as the most expensive option uh, 
Now, I've looked at this, and I, I'm not certain that I agree with that. In fact, I'm pretty certain I don't agree with that. Um, what? How much is it going to cost if we decide, uh, you know, can, can Ontario afford to refurbish Pickering? How much does it cost to, to fix this? Now that's, that is a very good question because, you know, increased uh, energy and electricity prices are very regressive, right? Um, a rich and a poor household tend to spend about the same amount on energy, uh, because, you know, the rich household might be a bigger house, but they've got more efficient appliances, better insulation, etc. But, you know, a rich person might spend 1% of their disposable income on electricity and, and a poor household is going to spend 10%. So it's, it's no laughing matter, um, the choices that we make um, and the investments that we make. So first, I really want to, you know, address the seriousness of that. Um, and already Ontario has um, some of the highest electricity prices in Canada. And our government actually devotes in the order of $6 billion a year to subsidize the ratepayer. Um, it is, I think, the fifth biggest budget item in the provincial government. Um, it's ahead of long-term care, for God's sakes. Right? So this is a major expenditure. So cost is, is very important. Um, I was mentioning before the lucrative uh, contracts for wind and solar projects um, that Ontario signed and that we're stuck with, um, you know, 20-year contracts, uh, promising, you know, prices that are two, three, four, five times more than uh, than the market clearing price for electricity. Um, so those have been a major stressor. But yes, uh, nuclear is um, it, it has a cost associated with it. It's a major infrastructure project. And I think, you know, people being um, skeptical of nuclear in the West in particular have every right to be. Um, nuclear, we know nuclear can be done cheaply and it, it is actually the fastest way to add low carbon, uh, power to a grid. We've seen that in France and Sweden, um, and, you know, Korea, Japan, China now, um, these are countries with a bit of a different context though. Um, countries that, you know, did this, you know, either before, um, we sort of eviscerated this, the idea of government, um, being involved in large infrastructure and funding it and coordinating it. Um, in the case of France and Sweden, these are different times. And we've seen, you know, in the UK and in, in, in the US, nuclear projects have gone tragically over over cost and over budget. So that's something that we as nuclear advocates really need to be aware of. Um, that's, again, why I'm uh, saying that refurbishment, I think, is our safest option. We have to be a bit humble and a bit conservative in our aspirations um, as an industry in Canada you know, what, what we have expertise in at this point is in refurbishment of Candus. Um, there are plans to build new nuclear. Um, I absolutely support that. Uh, but I think that, you know, the plans are to build small modular reactors, which will have one-tenth the output of Pickering. So it's a good addition to Pickering, but we need to keep Pickering around because, you know, the amount of gas that we're going to be building and burning as a result of this, um, you know, is going to be significant if it were taxed um, for every ton of CO2 it put out, we estimate that in 18 years it would pay for the refurbishment of Pickering. So, you know, our estimated cost um, looking at Darlington and Bruce is about $8.6 billion for Pickering with a B. It's a lot of money. You know, it's wow. no laughing okay. But that is in terms of in terms of providing another 30 or 40 years of, you know, ultra reliable, ultra reliable, always on, you know, four or five gram uh, CO2 per kilowatt hour electricity, we think it's worth it. Um, and it's an important investment to make. To put that into perspective, so that's 8.6 billion uh, for 3,100 megawatts. 
of capacity and for 30 or 40 years. The wind in it's Ontario is something like... It's a little more complicated than that because there's this A side and B side issue, right? So okay, the okay. A units have another 10, 15 years in them, right? If we shut Pickering down now, we're going to shut those units down that still have another 10 or 15 years in them, a, a full 1,000 megawatts, because it's too costly to operate just that one part of the plant. So if we do shut the plant down in 2024, the, that A side is not going to run. We're going to lose 1,000 megawatts. It's perfectly good. could go another 10 or 15 years. We're talking about just refurbishing the B side. So that's uh, 2,000 megawatts. So it's about $4 billion per, me- per gigawatt. Okay. Okay, that's, that's good to know. And so contrasting that with, say, the wind fleet, um, mm-hmm. we have something like 50, 5,400 uh, megawatts, I think, of capacity, nameplate, nameplate capacity, but with a um, availability of about, what, 33%, something like oh, that? That's generous. that's generous, yeah. Yeah, you know, so that, that fleet, you know, in terms of the Green Energy Act, I don't know the numbers right in front of me, but we have spent tens of billions of dollars on the Green Energy Act, on that wind and solar buildup. So we, we made a choice, like I, like I said, in the uh, early 2000s, which direction to go. We decided to go with this, this German example, you know, it's debatable. I mean, in Germany, this huge investment in wind and solar has lowered emissions. Not not significantly, but it has lowered it. And that's because it's in the context of a coal-powered grid. You know, there's a lot of coal on the grid. If you add some low-carbon sources, even if all they're doing is just sparing some burning of coal, you drive emissions down. But when you added all that wind and solar to a grid that was already very low-carbon, um, you know, as the coal phase it was completed with nuclear energy... Um, it, it didn't have that benefit. And, you know, you're saying it, it operates 30% of the time. That's true. But that 30% um, it operates sorry, at 30% of its capacity, but it's delivering energy when we don't need it. So we're curtailing a huge amount of it, but we're paying mm-hmm. for every cent that is produced in many of these contracts. So, yes, we've spent tens of billions on uh, wind and solar. They haven't delivered for us, and we should have spent, you know, $8.6 billion on on refurbishing Pickering. These are big numbers. They're scary. I know. but I, I was gobsmacked when i saw the 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 amount we pay for solar and wind like i saw the ontario energy board's report and it's like solar is 49 cents per kilowatt hour um wind is like 14 or 15 cents per kilowatt hour and then you see nuclear at eight cents and hydro at six cents i was Mm -hmm. like people are keep people keep telling me that nuclear is so expensive but if you you can go to the Ontario Energy Board and see how much we're paying, and we're paying twice as much for wind as we are for reliable nuclear. And it doesn't make any sense to me. Like, why yeah, are we doing this? There's a great quote, um, you know, that says that you know, wind and solar are a very cheap way to make expensive electricity, and nuclear <laughs> is an expensive way to make cheap electricity. And and that's because, I mean, leaving aside all the contracts and everything integrating unreliable intermittent energy onto a modern grid is very costly and those costs are not paid by the investors you know starting up the wind and wind and solar firms generally those are socialized onto the ratepayer in a regressive way and so you know when you look at feed-in tariffs around the world i had edgardo sepulveda he's a regulatory economist on my my program and we were looking at a study which showed that i think it was in 25 of 26 jurisdictions um, the result of you know feed-in tariffs to incent the use of wind and solar had resulted in, in regressive uh, prices. It's essentially, the poor you know rich people were incentivized; they got extra money. 
loans, um, higher rates to put wind and solar, particularly solar panels on their roofs and poor people fitted the bill and it had a regressive economic impact. So there's, there's a lot to this story in terms of affordability and cost. Um, big numbers indeed, but you know, again, if, if we're serious about decarbonization, um, we need to add something like 14 or 15 gigawatts of capacity to our grid to, elect to, to electrify transportation in this, in this province. Yeah, there was a recent right. announcement that uh, you're, they're not going to be selling uh, internal combustion engines beyond, what was it, 2030 or something like that? Is that? Yeah, you remember 2030, that? 2035. Yeah, yeah, and it's, it's all this charade. How are, how are of, they going to power that? That's electricity, well, right? That's more electricity. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, I mean, politicians, uh, it's, it's a cheap way to get votes to make these, these commitments and promises, but to actually make the difficult decisions and decide on, on the investments and to have the bold vision to, to get those done and, and choose the right technologies, they're missing in action. So, you know, Ontario does have, we're, we're not short on generation on our grid. Um, we haven't got to this yet, but we have an enormous amount of gas-fired uh, infrastructure lying around that sits very idle, you know, operating less than 10% of the year, um, which is a very good thing. And, mm. you know, but when we do shut down Pickering, those those capacity factors, the amount of time that that gas is online are going to jump to something like 30 or 40% of the time, they're going to be providing baseload, right? Not not just the peaking that they do now, but baseload power. And that's, mm. that's going to eliminate, we've estimated that's going to eliminate 50% of the emissions reduction that we achieve from the coal phase out. So this this is a, a huge step backwards. Now that's we're going to lose fifty percent of the emissions reduction from the coal phase out when Pickering if Pickering is shut down and uh, replaced due to burning gas, of which, natural gas. Yeah, which the independent electricity systems operator is is saying that we will. Now, does that include the uh, additional greenhouse gas footprint of the methane leaks from the fracking gas and delivery? No, no, it does not. And the carbon tax itself, you know, in terms of looking at life cycle emissions, um, the tax is occurring at what's measured at the stack, not the overall life cycle, which would include things like that leak rate you're referring to, which is a major contributor uh, to climate change because, you know, methane released in the atmosphere, at least over a 20 year period, has something like 80 times the warming potential of CO2. Yeah, if you look at it, I think the Environmental Defense Fund did a study of a bunch of uh, gas delivery uh, mining and delivery uh, systems and found like something like an average three percent of the the methane was leaked to the atmosphere and if mm -hmm. if that's really the case if it's that bad then that makes natural gas effectively the same as coal in terms of its hundred year greenhouse footprint and mm -hmm. worse in a 20-year time span because methane you know comes out of the atmosphere quicker than co2 you know there, there's actually worse issue. than coal yeah <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's there's uh, conflicting studies on it, but certainly has the potential to be for sure if we're, if we're not careful with fugitive emissions, as they're called. You know, speaking of the gas, I mean, this this is a really another really important side of the story. Um, so most of the gas that will be burned in Ontario's gas plants is sourced in the U.S. and is fracked, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's, you know, natural gas prices do bounce around, but with the fracking revolution, it's relatively cheap. We don't know what will happen over the next, you know, 20, 30 years uh, for the lifetime of these gas plants. If we applied a carbon tax just on the gas that will be burnt to replace Pickering, there would be $500 million a year in carbon tax revenue. Okay. Wow. 
So gas plants are interesting because, you know, it takes about 30 or 40 workers to run a, you know, one gigawatt gas plant. So they're, they're almost workerless pieces of infrastructure. Okay. Wow. Okay. So the fuel is, is the expense, you know, building it is, a, is the expense, right? Um, with nuclear, it's an entirely different story. You know, the capital cost of building the plant is expensive. The fuel is dirt cheap, but you have some expense in terms of paying the workers, right? So Pickering actually employs about 3,000 people. And wow. it, it employs them in, in high-paying jobs that are, you know, high-tech STEM jobs. Um, it does an enormous amount to raise the standard of living of the community. So 7,600 full-time equivalent jobs um, will be lost when Pickering shuts down, according to the Ontario Chamber of, uh, of Commerce. So this is an, an enormous impact. Like when the, when the GM plant in Oshawa, it's Canada's, you know, century-old auto manufacturing plant was shut down. I think it employed somewhere around three or 4,000 people. There was a national uproar. The premier was up in arms. We're not hearing a, a hoot um, about this this loss of you know of you know the, which will devastate the surrounding communities in terms of losing that number of, of good high paying jobs because you know we invented the Kander reactor here in Canada. Our supply chain, you know, we we mine the uranium in Saskatchewan. We turn it into fuel pellets, mostly here in Ontario. Um, you know, this is a ninety five percent made in Canada proposition. So yes. $8.6 billion is a lot of money, but that money stays in our communities. It pays people good jobs, you know, who circulate that money in their economy. Um, it provides intergenerational employment of the kind that we, you know, long for um, in this kind of gig economy era. And it, mm-hmm. and it produces ultra low carbon electricity. So it's, it's a win for the climate. It's a win for clean air. It's a win, it's a win for a green recovery for good jobs. Um, it's a it's a win for medicine in terms of the medical isotopes that are produced at these facilities, which enable modern healthcare. Um, so it's it's not without cost, but I think you know if you if you set up your Excel spreadsheet, you're going to find that the benefits um, you know this is the most beneficial investment that we can make. I know the 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 political situation in Germany is is uh, very odd as well. And now that they're shutting down, they've been shutting down their nuclear. And now they're dependent on Russia for for gas. You know, as soon as you become dependent on uh, another country for your energy, and this is a critical infrastructure for your country. And if the politics in that country should suddenly go wrong, you're basically a hostage. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and I mean, a big a big frustration for me as a you know as a science based climate activist who advocates for nuclear is that. I feel like I'm spending most of my energy in a rearguard action against misguided environmental groups that are hell bent on closing down nuclear plants, um, which goes against everything they're saying in terms of the urgency of a climate emergency. You know, in, in New York, when Indian Point shut down, they lost in one morning more clean energy than their entire wind and solar fleet. Like, just imagine someone going around with a hammer and a cutting torch, cutting down every wind turbine and smashing every solar panel in the course of one morning. That's that's what happened when Indian Point was shut down. Well, if they do that to Pickering, it'll be similar, won't it? It it will be for sure, for sure. Picker, Pickering puts down uh, what twice the amount of energy in a year as our whole wind fleet. I believe so. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but yeah, it's it's a basically always on resource, and wind, as you're mentioning, has a capacity factor of you know high twenty percent. Hmm. 
But but something that I that I think is very interesting is um, precisely what we're talking about in terms of that you know that rear guard action against misguided environmentalists. I have a hard time calling them environmentalists because the things that they advocate for are not climate friendly and and really have not been friendly for the environment. So in Ontario, we have a group called the Ontario Clean Air Alliance, and you know hats off to them. They were very instrumental in terms of creating the political pressure on the successive provincial governments to ban the use of coal and electricity. Um, you know, they were part of uh, what motivated several medical associations to come out in favor. They did a lot of political organizing. I have immense respect for them in that regard. Where the story gets a bit weird is this so-called Clean Air Alliance. Their plan for phasing out coal was to build gas plants. So as late as 2009, this organization was taking money from Union Gas and Enbridge Gas. And there's a bit of a conflict of interest here for a clean air alliance swapping out coal for gas, right? My, my first ex- encounter with them was their anti-nuclearism as well. And I thought it was a joke organization. It's yeah. Like, it's a clean air alliance trying to shut down nuclear? They were very upset that Ontario's coal generation was replaced by nuclear, which produces absolutely zero air pollution rather than gas. And there's actually a really interesting anecdote, again, happened around 2009. You probably remember these, uh, this gas plant um, controversy where the Liberal government at the time was building gas plants in a number of suburban yes. neighborhoods and politically important suburban neighborhoods. And so, you know, halfway through constructing a gas plant, they decided for electoral reasons to cancel the project. And so hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars were lost in that that fiasco. And indeed, I think one of the premier's advisors spent 35 days in jail. And it may be why uh, Dalton McGuinty was, uh, you know, left as the leader of the, uh, the Liberal Party. Um, but in any case, at that time, there was a group in, I believe it was in Oakville, who were protesting the construction of one of these gas plants about 500 meters from their housing. And the chairman of the Ontario Clean Air Alliance, Mr. Jack Gibbons, went to one of their organizing meetings and poo-pooed them. I say he gaslit them because he told them, hey, you know what, the smokestacks are really tall and it's very important that we build our energy infrastructure near where the demand is. Okay, so it has to be in your backyard. Don't worry. I'm with the Clean Air Alliance. These smokestacks will keep the uh, smog out of your neighborhood. And so the hypocrisy of that position, both in terms of the obvious problems of being a Clean Air Alliance and advocating for smog producing natural gas, but also in terms of this idea that we need to build our energy infrastructure near where we consume it because that's environmentally friendly. We don't need to build thousands of kilometers of transmission lines. You know, now their position is has completely flipped. They want to build those transmission lines, build, bring power in from Quebec, um, rather than it going to replacing coal and gas in upstate New York. So it's a very bizarre organization, and really, they're the Ontario Anti-Nuclear Alliance. They they really exist for that purpose. But you know, interestingly, in the last um, year or so, they've they've I think tried to build off that legacy of the coal phase out by calling for a gas phase out. Which is, which is a very interesting uh, campaign. And again, they're, they're very masterful in terms of political organizing. Um, they've been to a whole number of municipalities around the province. Um, they've got uh, you know, motions put forward at these municipal government hearings. And it's actually forced our, in, uh, our independent electricity systems operator to model and consider, well, can we do a gas phase of what would it look like? And you know, the really funny thing is that the Ontario Clean Air Alliance have been you know, just constant critics and fear mongers around Pickering and have been fighting to get it shut down, Mm -hmm. um, you know, over and over throughout the years. And 
when it shuts down, again, we're going to be burning gas to replace its output. You know, 10 million tons of CO2 as a result. So this is a highly contradictory organization. Um, and one that's, I think, really morally bankrupt. And, and, you know, given its track record, taking money from the fossil fuel industry, um, gaslighting residents concerned about air quality, saying that you need to have a gas plant in your backyard, um, hmm. you know, and, and fighting tooth and nail to shut down Ontario's nuclear fleet, which, again, produces zero particulate air, or any air pollution at all. It's a uh, it's a it's a morally bankrupt position. It's a hypocritical position. You, you get a lot of these 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 organizations that people they name them opposite of what they are uh, yeah. to try to fool people. Yeah. And I, I thought that's what this was. And maybe it's it really is. It's good clickbait, I think. Right. I think I think the thing that I've learned most, though, from, you know, going from being a pro nuclear advocate in general to like a, an actual campaign um, with real world impacts, such as losing pickering, such as taxing the gas is, you know, it's made everything much more concrete for me. And it's really pointed again to the challenge and the, like the monumental scale of of this energy transition that we're supposedly embarking on. The kind of political will, um, the marshalling of resources, if we really want to do this, even in a rich country or rich province like Ontario, that's already miles ahead. It's, it's enormous. So what drives me crazy is when you have people from the environmental movement who say it's going to be easy you know we just need the political will we just need to you know build enough um, wind turbines and solar panels we have all the technology that we need you know this campaign in particular has shown me just how crazy that all is because you know in addition to saving the climate we need to keep our ventilators running in our hospitals and our water treatment plants running um, and all of the sort of basic needs of a society, which which re- rely on you know abundant, affordable energy. Um, and, load. Yeah, and and nuclear does give us that way out of this what's been called the Gordian knot. Mm-hmm. So, you've been uh, helping to organize a stand up for nuclear event, I believe, uh, and putting your your money where your mouth is, I guess. Uh, can you can you tell everybody a little bit about this this upcoming event? <laughs> yeah, so it's uh, I guess a little bit of money, but mostly sweat and tears. Um, last year, I did pay for a few banners out of my pocket, and I spent a day um, painting signs with uh, with my family. But um, yeah, so this is a, a global event. Um, their events, uh, I've lost track now of how many cities are involved. Last year, it was over fifty. I think this year, it's over eighty. Um, and basically, you know, the environmental case for nuclear energy is you know it being framed in that light probably goes as far back as the 70s when um the renowned tinkerer scientist inventor james lovelock started uh talking positively about nuclear energy and its and, and its role in fighting climate change and, and in the environment uh, this is again the 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 gentleman who came up with the gaia hypothesis the earth is a kind of a living organism existing in a homeostasis between all of its elements um hmm. And, you know, we've had a number of heterodox environmental thinkers throughout the years. Uh, Mark Linus would be an example um, and, and others who have come up and created a space where we can start understanding and talking about um, the environmental case for nuclear energy. But up until recently, we haven't seen um, advocacy movements or grassroots organizing around it. And believe you me, you know, I have a history in um, some labor organizing, um, you know, fighting for refugee health care working on issues of indigenous health, migrant health. I, I, I've always been a, on the politics side of thing. I've never really been thinking about technology. And so the fact that I've become an activist 
um, who is so focused on a technology is, is a very strange thing for me. But that is the strangeness of our times. We're, we're dealing with climate change and this question of energy transition. And so it becomes a very important thing to interrogate and understand the benefits and drawbacks of the tools at our disposal. And we, need, we need to choose the right ones. So in any case, a movement is now growing, a grassroots movement of folks all around the world um, who are gathering in public to engage with the public, to get to know each other, to get off of the kind of internet echo chambers, and to really try and start having a political impact um, and change minds. Because boy, do we have a, uh, a long hill to, to get up. Um, there's a lot of preconceptions and myths. I think there's probably no field that's, you know, where there's more misconceptions and misunderstandings than that of nuclear energy. So it's, uh, you know, a Sisyphean task, pushing the boulder up the hill. Um, but this, the stand-up events have been really crucial, I think, to, to catalyzing this international movement. And so in 2019, we had a single event in Toronto. Um, in 2020, we had an event in Victoria, BC, of all places. It was a surprise to me, but Edmonton and Toronto. And this year, we're having even more events in eight cities across the country. Um, so, you know, if you are a listener and you're in, you know, get, basically get in touch with Al. Get on the Rational View Facebook page and you can find out how to how to participate in these events. But a great place to come out, even if you don't have your mind made up about nuclear, you're going to meet some people. You get to chat with them, pose your questions. Um, so it's a really great opportunity to uh you know, to engage with people and to, for me, you know, to figure out my messaging and, and figure out what people's concerns on. Because I, I think there can be a tendency to start to get a bit jaded and burned out and dismissive and angry even, especially with these rearguard battles I've been describing. But, you know, always sort of understanding where people are coming from, um, being compassionate, you know, empathetic, trying to get in their shoes and understand their concerns. That's how you, you know, are eventually going to change change minds, right? And it's, it's through Indeed. these personal relationships seeing people face to face, I find that I've had the greatest success and I've, I've changed some, uh, some pretty, um, pretty interesting people's minds on nuclear. So, uh, it's a chance to uh, go to try and do that and, and to have your mind changed as well. So a very interesting environment. Um, so highly recommend that people check out Standard for Nuclear, um, both if you're in Canada and it's around the world, wherever you are. I know you have a, a big international audience now, so maybe we'll post that in the show notes. Indeed. Indeed. So is there anything else you want to you want to hit on your tax the gas campaign links you want to so put out there? Easy, easy URL to remember, just taxthegas.org. Um, you know, climate is an international issue, so we do have a petition there. It's open for anybody to sign. There is an option to, to click and, and get added to our mailing list, which would be wonderful um, because we're trying to build a movement here. And that's the 21st century way to do it. So yeah, taxthegas.org, sign the petition, um, and you know, you'll know you see a link there to Canadians for Nuclear Energy if you want to learn more about the kind of parent organization of this campaign. Thank you so much for coming on to the program again. Uh, I love chatting with you, and I hope everyone enjoyed uh, listening to this. Uh, it's great to have you on. Thank you. It's a pleasure being back, Al. If you'd like to follow up with more in-depth discussions, please come find us on Facebook at The Rational View and join our discussion group. If you like what you're hearing, please consider visiting my Patreon page at patreon.podbean.com slash The Rational View. Thanks for listening.